Hey, what is going on, Valley family? Great to be with you here today. Uh, I'm Pastor Randy. Pastor Greg, our lead pastor, is, is on vacation right now. He's actually at his oldest daughter's wedding, which many of you guys know. So Dr. Greg's gone. Uh, the fam is gone. A lot of, lot of people from the church are all gone down there in Virginia. And it's Memorial Day, which is like a big vacation day. So uh, for all 16 of you on the online campus today, man, you are lucky that I'm even wearing shoes, man. But just kidding. I, I'm, I'm very happy to be with you guys here today, and I feel like uh, we, have a, we have a good, strong message for you today. Uh, we are in week number four of a series called Family Matters. Family Matters, and we're going to finish it up today with a message about generations, from generation to generation. Dr. Greg will be back next week, but before I get started, let me just ask you a question real quick. Um, when you first became a Christian, when we first became a believer, maybe you weren't even a believer, but you, but you started reading the Bible first. And my question is, when you started to read the Bible for the first time, where did you begin? Did you begin in, you know, the New Testament? Did you begin in the Old Testament? Did you begin in the beginning of Genesis and try to work your way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? Did you do that? When I first, uh, wasn't even a believer, but when I first was kind of checking out the faith a little bit or was drawn to the Bible, I started in Genesis. And uh, maybe like many of you, uh, my experience was something like this. You know, Genesis is like, you know, in, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then you get, you know, he creates animals, and he's creating the sky and the sun, the moon, and the stars, creates man, Adam, and Eve. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. That's kind of, that's actually kind of fascinating. And then we're moving on a little bit in Genesis, and you get to these guys, which, which you call the patriarchs. You get the patriarchs of the Jews. You get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you get all their stories, the story of the beginning of uh, ancient Israel, and like that's all narrative, so I'm kind of, okay, I can rock with this. That's pretty cool. You come along to, to Exodus after Genesis, and Exodus is kind of interesting because you're dealing with Moses, you're dealing with Pharaoh, you got a good guy and a bad guy, you got God in there, signs and wonders and mir uh, miraculous things. Uh, God delivers his people out of bondage, out of the slavery in Egypt, and you get the parting of the Red Sea and all this cool stuff. You even got like the Ten Commandments and things. Exodus is okay. We can rock with that. And then, if you've done this before, you know what's next. You come to, num to Leviticus, and Leviticus, you're like, what is going on right now? Leviticus is full, if you haven't read it before, it's full of like these priestly codes and regulations, law and stuff, long chapters just full of law about like what priests wear and all these different details, colors and fabrics and measurements and stuff. Uh, all kinds of things about uh, animal sacrifice, and it's kind of bloody. So if you're reading it in our current cultural context, it's like, that's kind of crazy. But you're like, I'm on a Bible reading plan, man. I'm going to try to push through Leviticus here. And you get past all the stuff about uh, endless chapters, it seems, about uh, testing for leprosy, uh, dealing with house mold. That's in there. Fact check me. Dealing with house, house mold uh, and all kinds of uh, bodily uncleanness, right? All kinds of interesting stuff there in Leviticus, but you're tough. You signed up for this. You're going to soldier through in your Bible reading plan. So now you've done Genesis. You've done Exodus. You've finished Leviticus. That is a great, great, great uh, accomplishment. But baby, then you hit numbers, <laughs> and that's for me when the wheels always fell off because numbers— is where, like, the Israelites are in the desert, they're in the wilderness, and I always felt like I could handle, you know, I like Genesis, I like Exodus, uh, I kind of could rock with Leviticus and push through, and then I would hit Numbers, and I felt personally like I was in the same exact desert that the Israelites were in because I was dying of the dryness of the writing. 
I would get into chapter 1 of Numbers, and if you know that a little bit, it is dealing with a census. There's a census of the people of Israel, and it's all of these, like, tribes by names and families and guys I can't pronounce and a bunch of other stuff and places I don't know anything about. And uh, it just was super difficult for me to get through Numbers and, and even, like, make the accomplishment of getting into, like, Deuteronomy and going forward. So, as a pastor, sometimes uh, I like to encourage people. If you never really read the Bible before, or you're kind of going through for your first time, don't start. Don't start in Genesis with the, uh, with the intention of just powering through the whole Bible because you're going to get lost there in the wilderness too, probably. You're probably going to perish in the desert there too. My recommendation is always, instead of starting back there, start with Jesus somewhere, right? Start with, start with a gospel. Uh, I sometimes will recommend like Luke and go from like, hey, we can, we can read Luke and Acts because there's the gospel of Jesus. And then the same writer talks about the beginnings of the church after Jesus resurrects. So Luke and Acts is a great place to start. Or you can simply start with the first book in many of our Bibles, which is Matthew. Matthew, the gospel. I love Matthew, the gospel. But I always laugh a little bit. I always chuckle a little bit to myself when I start to read it from the beginning again. Because Matthew likes to just fire from the hip right at the beginning, and he starts with what? He starts with a big fat genealogy, so you feel like you're back reading like Leviticus or Numbers again, but, but there's a good purpose for him doing it. So um, there's a lot there, and uh, we're going we're gonna to break that open a little bit today. We're going to get our hands a little bit dirty, maybe in a section of the Bible that doesn't always get talked about. It's such a skippable section of the Bible, all these names and people that we don't recognize and can't pronounce or whatever. There's, it's such a skippable part of the Bible. It's so easy to jump right over that and go, okay, the birth of Jesus, I understand that, right? I can't pronounce Amimelab or whatever that guy's name is, but I totally understand Jesus in Bethlehem. I get it. But even though it's such a skippable section, there's so much deep and profound stuff there, right? And I joke also about Numbers and Leviticus because Leviticus is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible now just because it's kind of fascinating in the light of Jesus to see like how a lot of that kind of foreshadowed and prefigured Jesus and there's a lot of symbolism in there. It's neat. It's really neat. But I want to slow it down here today and we're going to mine for some precious stones we're going to mine for some precious stones among the rocks of unpronounceable names like Aminadab, right? So Matthew 1, uh, we'll start in uh, verse 2 here. We'll, we'll start with a little bit of the genealogy just to give you a taste. We got, we'll get there. We got Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob, right? Begot. Uh, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Who uses the term begot if you're not reading the Bible, right? Uh, Judah begot Perez and Zerah and uh, by Tamar. Perez, we got Hezron, Hezron, Ram, maybe that's how you pronounce it. Ram, uh, Malimanab, or whatever, yep. Uh, Nashon, and Salmon, uh, or Salmon, if you're fancy. And then it keeps going. You might get to Boaz, you might recognize him. Rahab, you might know her. Uh, Obed, Ruth, and then it goes down to King David in the next verses and stuff, right? This goes on for 42 generations. Matthew starts off with 42 generations. He there's not even like, there's nothing, there's no primer. You just, you just opened Matthew, verse 1, it's like, boom, 42 generations. And you got to go through all of them if you want to, you, you know, kind of see what's going on. And it's like, well, Matthew, why? Why did you put that big, long genealogy there? I'll tell you why. Matthew is setting the table for the arguments that he's going to be building for the rest of his entire gospel right here in the first verses. So one of the big takeaways, if we 
kind of analyze these verses a little bit, one of the big takeaways that I think the Holy Spirit spoke through Matthew and wants us to take from it is that one of the big takeaways is, is that Jesus, Matthew's portraying Jesus as the beginning of a new creation. As the beginning of a new creation. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Let's, let's start to like kind of crack open one of the nuts and see what's inside here. Right? Let's, let's mine a little bit right here in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now your translation might not say the book, but it does in Greek. It says the book of the genealogy. And that's kind of significant because a lot of scholars think that Matthew chose those words very, very intentionally because it harkens back, it calls back, it calls to mind, especially the Jews to whom this was originally written, it calls to mind something from Genesis chapter 5 that starts off with the same Jewish phrase, the book of the genealogy of Adam. The book of the genealogy of Adam. So Matthew's intentionally bringing Adam's uh, verbiage to mind here. And in here, in this genealogy of Adam, you know, in the day that God created man, he made him Adam in the likeness of God, in the image of God. Matthew wants to set up a compare-contrast right off the bat with the first verse of his gospel that he's writing. He definitely, at least a lot of scholars think that he really definitely used those words on purpose. He chose those words and he, and he wanted people to look at Genesis 5-1 there. So Matthew chooses the wording on purpose. Adam is the first man that's created, if you remember, right? He had all these children that it talks about that, Lord, we're not going to be reading all those names right now, but all them names that come there in, Math, in uh, Genesis chapter 5, uh, all these children, all these genealogies, all the generations of Adam, and guess what? They are all where right now? Dead! They're all dead. They all died. They all died. The argument is that Jesus is the beginning of a new creation because in him all who believe will live. This gets fleshed out further in Matthew, but let's hop over to Paul because Paul says it very plainly and explicitly here in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul says, hey, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Matthew's calling back to the genealogy of Adam, all those who are born in the image of Adam, right, according to Adam, and he's comparing it by setting up Jesus right there at the top of that genealogy and saying, this is the book of the generations of Jesus. Now let me ask you, that begs the question, who are the children of Jesus? Did he have physical children? I know there's like rumor and gossip, scuttlebutt maybe, uh, if, if like you will take some of these, um, I don't know, pseudo-gospels that clearly weren't written by gospel authors, clearly weren't written by disciples of Jesus. They throw some crazy stuff in there about Jesus having a relationship with, uh, with Mary Magdalene and stuff. That stuff is blank, right? It is nothing. There is nothing to that. It's just rumor. It's just kind of silly. Uh, because biblically we, biblically, we know that Jesus died at like 33 years old, didn't have children, didn't have relationships. He didn't really honestly have time for that, right? He is God in the flesh, walking earth, right? He is calling disciples unto himself and discipling them and teaching them how to go out and reach and disciple others. That was Jesus's like entire life. That was his entire life. So here, Matthew Matthew is picking up on this. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, Paul, again, goes on a little bit further. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49. He says something like this. Try and stay with me. This gets a little bit, uh, 
ethereal sometimes, but, but I don't want it to be because it doesn't have to be. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. Remember God created Adam from the dust back there in Genesis? The second man, Jesus, is where is he from? From heaven. Contrast. As was the earthly man, Adam, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, Jesus, so are also those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne, what, the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So we talk about being new creations in Christ. The old me has died and the new me is alive in Jesus. That's what it means even to be baptized in Jesus. It's a symbol of this truth. Your old man is going under and dying and coming up new in Jesus. Matthew is picking up on this from verse 1. He's trying to telegraph this. It's a, it's a main point that he's trying to give us. Jesus is the first in line of a new creation. Everyone born of him by faith will never die. The whole genealogy, in fact, all the way starting back there in Genesis, because you know, gen it was generations after generations after generations. And then you get to the next one, and it's like Noah to Abraham, and then it just goes on and on, generations and generations and generations. All of those genealogies from Adam all the way up until Jesus have been about bloodlines and the children of men. Physical blood, flesh and blood. Who's your parent? Who's your family? What family were you born into? Are you with us or are you not with us? Are you in or are you out? And Jesus comes on the scene and flips it all on its head. It's not about what family you're from anymore. It's not about what it was like in the environment that you were raised in anymore. It's not about arbitrary distinctions between people groups anymore. It's not about the difference between male and female and Jew and Greek and slave and free anymore. It's not. Jesus has taken those generations upon generations of bloodlines and all that stuff and flipped it on its head. So that was the family of that particular group of men. But he's here talking about the family of God, the family of God. It's not about physical blood anymore, but it's the blood of Christ. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? Through faith. Not through Jesus' physical children. He didn't have any, but through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, again, baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are made children of God through faith in Jesus, which is a trip and brings me to my next point about the genealogies here that Matthew is trying to give us. The next takeaway is that the kingdom of God is not of flesh and blood. It's not of flesh and blood. You see, this genealogy in Matthew, what it's really doing, because you see King David in there and stuff, the Jews were very concerned with this idea of the Messiah that was going to come one day, right? Once upon a time, Israel had been this uh, uh, premium nation on the earth under like King David, and even under King Solomon, it was a big-time nation, big-time, very rich, very powerful, conquering many lands, a big old thing. It was at the height of the Israeli empire at that point in time, the ancient Israel empire. 
during David and Solomon. And eventually after Solomon, even maybe during Solomon's time, it starts to fall apart. Solomon's son has a, has a civil war, right? They break away. No longer is it one nation Israel. Now it becomes two. You have Israel and you have uh, Judea, right? You have these two different things going on. And then from there, it's like terrible kings and the descendants, even tracking through Matthew here, it's like terrible kings and awful kings and kings that were against God. And then you might have a good king. You might have an okay king. You might have a complicated king and then a terrible one and a terrible one. And it goes all the way down until the the nation of, of, of Israel, once the highest of heights during David's time, by the time of Jesus, is not even its own kingdom anymore. It's a puppet kingdom ruled by Rome, and Rome has set up a puppet king that's not even fully Jewish. He's like a half-Jew guy that is a very cruel king. You read about him, King Herod. And this is the nation of Israel at the point in time when Jesus comes upon the scene. And the Jewish people have this expectation that someday the Messiah is going to come. The real king of Israel is going to show up on the scene and going to make right all the wrongs and going to take the sword to Rome, boom, knock out their oppressors, and then take over actually the world. That was kind of their expectation that God, the Messiah, the king of the Jews was going to show up and do that. And they're expecting it to be a fulfillment that comes through that line of King David. And that's what Matthew is showing us, is that Jesus is in the line of King David. So by the flesh, by the blood, Jesus actually kind of had an argument to be an heir of David's. Yes, I'm aware that he was adopted by Joseph, his adopted father. But his adopted father adopted him into that family, which is a totally legal, ancient way of making you just like a child. Jesus had a claim to that heir, that throne of David's that is actually kind of sitting empty. But he doesn't come as a conquering king, does he? He comes as the suffering servant. And he opens the doors of the kingdom of God, not just to the Jews that were expecting him, but he throws them wide open through that suffering that he went through. He throws those doors wide open and says, this is not about flesh and blood anymore. It's not about the family you come from. It's not about your past and the things that you can't control anymore. It is about the Spirit of God. Through faith, if you believe in me, Jesus, you are a part of the kingdom of God and the family of God. First Corinthians 15.50 What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Because surprise, surprise, not only is like earthly Israeli kingdom or whatever, not only is that kingdom not going to last forever, but the kingdom of God is not something that you can even necessarily touch or see or be a part of. Look at somebody and be like, oh, I can tell by the color of your skin or the color of your eyes that you're a part of this kingdom or whatever. It's much deeper than that. It's much more profound than that. It's by the Spirit of God. It's by faith in Jesus. You see, the blood of Christ is the real royal bloodline. And the kingdom of God is the real royal kingdom. It's not about sex or status or color. It's about unity in Jesus. He broke down the barrier wall of all these things that separate us. And guess what? It was a scandal back then, just as it is a scandal today to some people. 
You think people wanted to hear that back in the day? You think, you think a slave owner wanted to hear that back in the day, that now slaves were equal and now they're all one in Jesus Christ? What the heck, Jesus? No. You think like, like these men who treated women as property, complete property, you think they wanted to hear that these women were now co-heirs in Christ with them? It was not popular, right? It was mind-blowing. It was a scandal to them, just like it is to some of us today. But it's the truth. If you can't handle that, I don't know what you're doing here. The first of a new family. You are a new creation in Jesus. The family of God isn't about whose blood you have in you, but whose spirit you have in you, thus making it accessible to all regardless of position. The lowest of the low were invited in with arms wide open by the king of all kings who desired all people to come to him. So the third takeaway from this genealogy in Matthew is that outsiders are welcome in the family of God. Outsiders are welcome. God was including the outsiders from the beginning. And even though the story of God started inside this kind of Jewish bubble, God's intention was never for it to stay there. God is too big to be contained inside of one earthly family. And we see here in Matthew something very interesting, something that you do not get in the genealogy of Adam back there in Genesis 5. Heck, you don't even get it in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And that genealogy is longer than the one in Matthew 1 here. You know what those two don't have that the one in Matthew has? Women. Women. Because this is a society where things were passed down. It was called patrilineal. It was from father to son, to son to son to son. And you would trace it only through the males. Remember, only males could be king. Only males could be priests, right? Through the males. That's how it was traced. So Matthew is introducing women into this genealogy. And that there's not a lot of them. In fact, like the, the males in this genealogy far outnumber the women. However, the women are so strategic. They're so strategic that Matthew is telling this side story. And if we don't mine for it, if we don't say, Why, why'd you put that in there? If we don't kind of dig a little bit deeper, we'll never see these things. He's telling a side story because if he really was just going to throw women in there just to throw women in there, he could have chose other women. Right? you got the patriarchs. you got uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's plenty of stories about Sarah and her faith, about Rebecca, about Rachel and Leah, the wives of, of Jacob. There's all kinds of, they're, they're the matriarchs, right? You would expect them. If Matthew's going to use women, you'd expect them. They're not there. In fact, it's not even close. So who's the first woman that's in there? Well, her name's Tamar. Tamar. Who the heck is Tamar, right? Who is Tamar? Matthew, why are you including this person? It's because outsiders are welcome in the family of God. Matthew shows some love to a few of the moms, and they're not who we would expect. And on the surface, they're kind of oddball choices. We read about Tamar in 
uh, numbers 38 and we get her story and it's kind of a doozy it's full of dirty words we're not supposed to say in church like prostitute and sex and uh, other ones that i'm not going to mention right now all kinds of all kinds of interesting things are happening back there in numbers 38 in the story of tamar sometimes i think that we are more prude than jesus was right because this is in there for a reason this is in there for a reason. Matthew's bringing this. God is bringing this to mind, to our attention through Matthew in the very first verses of his gospel. Hasn't even gotten really to the birth of Jesus yet. We're talking about crazy stories, and we're going to read it a little bit right here. Tamar, Genesis 38, 11. So Judah, who's a rock star, you know, he's kind of like a rock star of the Old Testament. Yeah, he was sometimes kind of a scumbag, right? But when you think of Judah, you think like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Judah was one of the original, like 12, one of the big tribes of Israel, guys. So Judah has children in the genealogy with Matthew, and it says by Tamar, right? So Tamar, back here, is with Judah. But you notice right here, uh, Judah says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Wait a minute. I thought Judah and Tamar had kids together. Yeah, they did. Yeah. All right, Jesus. All right, Matthew. All right, Lord, where are you going with this story? So there was, a, there was back in the day, there was this, uh, this custom that the Jews had where if uh, a, 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 a brothers, right, if you had several brothers in a family and the oldest one was married to a woman and he died and they never had kids, well, then she would pass, like it or not, she would pass to the second oldest son, and then if uh, they didn't have children and the second one died, then, he, then she would pass to the third one. And this is actually what happens. Judah has three sons. Tamar's with the first one. He dies, no fault of hers. So then she goes and she becomes the wife of the second son. He dies, no fault of hers. And then Judah's looking at his third son and he's looking at her and he's looking at his third son and he's looking at her and he's like, yo, this chick's cursed. I'm not trying to give my third son to her. He's going to die. So he makes up a little bit of a lie to her and says, hey, live as a widow in your father's house. Go back, to your, go back to where you come from. You're not one of us anyway, right? Tamar's not a Jewish name. It's not a Hebrew name. She's a Gentile. Go back to wherever you come from. Go, go live in the household of your father until my third son grows up. And he says, yeah, uh, like I'm actually going to give him to you because he's probably going to die too. So Tamar listens and goes to live in her father's household. Living alone childless, husbandless. Back in those times, if you were a woman of age and you were childless and husbandless, you were pretty much dead person walking. You had like nothing to live for. Your whole identity in that society was wrapped up in how many children you had and who your husband was, and she got neither. So she's waiting there in her house. Judah has lied to her, sent her away. She's waiting in her house. And the years go by. And the son gets older and older. And she realizes at some point in time, that this guy's kind of double-crossed her and is never going to give her the third son. She's going to live forever like a widow, like a, like pretty much like a dead person, living in a house but not alive, according to her, according to that society. So she's told one day, verses 13 and 14, hey, your father-in-law is on his way to this place to do something. So she gets this idea. She takes off her widow's clothes, covers herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then she sits down at the entrance, uh, and um, we see the next, the next one here, the next slide. On to the next one. Judah sees her, and because she's disguised, 
He thinks that she's a prostitute. She covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now and let me sleep with you. Come now and let me sleep with you. And she's all like, all right, what are you going to give me? She doesn't, he doesn't know it's her. What are you going to give me? And he's like, well, I'm going to give you a goat, baby. And she says, okay, well, until you get me that goat, what are you going to give me in the meantime? Give me like your ring. Give me your staff so I know I'll give these back when you send me that goat. He says, all right, deal. So they do the deed. She gets pregnant by that. And he goes away. And he tries to send the goat later on, but there's no prostitute there. And everybody's like, there's never been a prostitute here. So a couple months later, we pick up the story. A couple months later, 38, 24, three months later, Judah is told by somebody, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah, being the stand-up guy that he is, he says, hey, let's burn her to death. This is the guy? This is the guy in the genealogy of Jesus? This guy? This is the guy who's like a rock star in the Old Testament? Judah? This guy? We call Jesus the line of the tribe of Judah, and it's this guy? Yeah, it's this guy. Bring her out and have her burned to death. So verse 25 says, as she was being brought out, she sends a message to her father-in-law. She says, hey, check this out, man. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you can recognize whose ring, whose seal, and cord, and staff these are. And Judah says, hey, those are mine. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And he realizes what he had done. He recognizes them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I wouldn't give her to my, since I lied to her, since I sent her away, since I left her for dead, she is more righteous than I. Even though she's done this crazy thing, she is more righteous than I. Complicated, right? Messy. Matthew brings in the messy and shows us that even the messy has a place at the table with Jesus. He didn't need to select this woman by name and put her into the genealogy of Jesus, but he did because it's messy. And he's telling the story of the gospel, of the inclusion of the outsiders. He's also kind of diminishing Judah a little bit because he's a hero, right? He's a hero, and it's like, we're going to call to mind what Judah did to this woman. And yeah, both sides, pretty complicated, pretty messy. But we want to make sure that the readers understand that there's a reason here that we're bringing Tamar into this genealogy. Can anybody relate to that? Messy families? Maybe not to that extent, but it happens. Crazier things have happened. And we go from that first woman in the genealogy that Matthew uses to the next one, where the first one kind of dabbled as a prostitute. Rahab straight up had a career as a prostitute. What is going on, Matthew? You don't got no Sarah. You don't got no Rebecca. You couldn't use Rachel or Leah using prostitutes and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. I wonder what God is trying, I wonder what Jesus is trying to tell us about the people around us that we look down on. I wonder what Jesus is trying to tell us by including these in his genealogy. Rahab, Rahab, Rahab. Although she once lived as a career prostitute, her legacy is that of a woman of faith. If you remember her, she lived in this city called Jericho, 
that the Israelites were about to conquer, and uh, they sent in two Israelite spies into Jericho just to kind of check the place out. And the king of Jericho got word and said, oh, these Israelite spies are here. They come to spy us out. So the king finds out, hey, they were with Rahab the prostitute. Hey, what were they doing in the prostitute house? I wonder. <laughs> I wonder if you ever thought that one through before. They're in the prostitute's house. So the, so the king goes to Rahab, boom, 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 sends some people. Hey, where's those guys that were in here? And she's like, I don't know. They went that way. Closes the door, turns around and says to the spies, to the Israelites, listen, I know that your God is with you. I know that he brought you through that Red Sea. I know he delivered you miraculously from the bondage and evil of Egypt. I know that God has a purpose for you guys, that he set you apart, and that he's going to give you this city. And all I ask in return for protecting you there is that you protect my family and I when you do take this city. And Rahab the prostitute ends up, lands in the Hebrews chapter 11, hall of faith, hall of faith. By faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab is shown mercy. And if you know your Bible a little bit, this might be kind of interesting. Who, who's, who's Rahab's son? Who's the next one in that genealogy of Matthew there? Rahab has Boaz. Rahab has Boaz. You see, Rahab is shown mercy, but she teaches her son to be merciful. The son grows up and redeems the third woman in this genealogy, Ruth. Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Gentile. It was frowned upon for an Israelite to take a Gentile woman and marry her. But he does that. He does that. Rahab was redeemed by faith and taught her son right. And her son redeems Ruth. You see, something that's kind of interested, interesting about Rahab is that she was a prostitute who knew about being mistreated by men. But she taught her son how to treat a woman right. And that's redemption. Rahab, redeemed by faith, and her son redeems Ruth, brings a Gentile woman, a widow, and marries her into the family. Rahab, shown mercy, teaches her son to be merciful. Without Rahab, there is no Ruth. There's an entire book of the Bible about Ruth. It's called Ruth. But without Rahab, there's no Ruth. Talk about powerful legacy. Even though her story was complicated, right? Sound familiar? You come from a complicated story? A complicated family? How much hope is there for us who come from crazy complicated families? When Matthew is holding up for examples these extremes to call our attention to the messiness that was going on of just human relationships in life. And God, through Matthew, is affirming to you and I that there's a place at the table for you and I. Messy or not, there's a place at the table. Will you take your place with Jesus? A powerful legacy. The fourth woman that's in that genealogy 
She's not even named by name. I know it's not in the slides, but in verse 6, it says, David had a son by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Her. She's not even named. She's named by presence, but not by name. David had a son by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, we know her name was Bathsheba, right? But, but so we're digging a little bit. Like, why are you not mentioning her by name? What's that, what's that story about again? And you start to look at it. And I, hit, I was probably like in my late 30s or something before I, I came across like a teaching. I was reading this, this story and I was like, I wonder, huh? And you're thinking to yourself, I'm thinking to myself, Bathsheba is like some random woman like in the city of Jerusalem and David is the king and sees her and sends people to her and tells her, come with me, come to the king. And she's like this nobody, and all of a sudden she's been taken by guards or soldiers or whatever and brought before the king, and the king makes his intentions known plainly to her, like, what's up? Trying to get with that. What is she going to say in that moment? If you are brought from where you're from, away from your husband who's not there, who's a soldier who's out in the field, you are brought from your home, you're put before the king, and the king looks at you and says, I want you for me, and you're surrounded by guards and soldiers and kings and officials and all these things, are you going to say no? Is your life on the line at that point? And we don't like to talk about this, but I think that the reason that Matthew is using Bathsheba in here, this story of David's wife that he had who had been the wife of another man, is to bring back to mind that, yes, King David, yes, this is a, a royal bloodline basically tracing King David's, David's lineage to Jesus, but we're going to bring to mind some of the shortcomings, major shortcomings of the hero David, who apparently, when we read it, I think with clear eyes, uh, it looks a lot like he sexually abused Bathsheba. Like if there's like a major pastor or something and, and he's like having a relationship with like women in his, in his, uh, in his congregation and it, they're not his wife or whatever and they're married, what do you call that? You call that spiritual abuse? You call that sexual abuse? You call that all kinds of things, right? David and his authority, it was an abuse of authority and it was sexual abuse. And Matthew's bringing that story in. Matthew's bringing that story in. So you have uh, one who acted as a prostitute, one who was a career prostitute. He had a Gentile widow woman that was brought and redeemed into the family by Boaz, the son of a prostitute. And then you have the fourth one, Bathsheba, who was sexually abused. Hello. Hello. There's a spot at the table for you. No matter how messy your past, maybe no, no matter how, how messy maybe your present, there's a spot at the table of the family of God for you. She who had been the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. David kills off her husband to get what he wants after he already got her pregnant. It's, ugly, it's dirty, it's ugly, it's messy. The genealogies are the family going down to Jesus and it's the story of, of life. It's the story of the unexpected. It's the story of sin and imperfection. It's the story of redemption and inclusion. It's the story of the family of God. That's a reminder to the people who looked up to those people, to the Davids and the Judas and all these guys. Your heroes were flawed, just like anybody else. Don't have them up on too high of a pedestal. 
And don't look too down at these other ones because they're right there at the table with them. Your heroes were flawed and their legacies are complicated. There's carnage in their past, some wreckage. But God is a God of redemption. So what's your story? What will be your legacy? This isn't just physical children we're talking about. This is a spiritual thing. What is your legacy? Are you an outsider on the outside that feels like they're on the outside of this family of God thing, that they're on the outside of this Jesus thing, of this church thing? Do you feel like an outsider, like you don't belong, that you're not sure that you have a place here because of your past, because of the stuff that you maybe even struggle with right now? Do you feel the lie of the enemy that you don't belong at the table of God? Are you the outsider that needs the reminder today that you are welcome with open doors and open arms. If that's you, I want your ears to open and I want you to hear. Jesus loves you and has a place for you. Don't be put off by that stuff. Or do you need to be like Matthew here and work hard to make sure that outsiders have a place at the table. Maybe you're secure in your place, but maybe there's people in your life, and I think if we think hard enough, we can find people in our life that are those outsiders that need to know that they have a place at that table, that family of God, that kingdom of God. And maybe we need to work hard like Matthew and try to bring those people in to the story of God, that they can find their place where they belong with Jesus. So as I close today, are you an outsider? Are you sent to the outsiders to bring them in? Lord Jesus, I just thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace and your power, Lord. Your perfect love, God, that surrounds and just falls upon us, Lord, all, Lord, if we would just receive you, Lord. Thank you that your your arms are wide enough. The doors to your house are big enough that you're calling each and every one of us to you by name if we would just turn and look to you and receive that outstretched hand. The Bible says that if you believe that, if you receive that, not just praying a prayer, but if you receive that really from your heart and that Spirit of God is doing a work in you, that you belong, you've been adopted into the family of God. You are with Jesus, a new creation, and the old you has passed away, and the new you is here in Jesus, and that the hope is that someday, after our physical bodies are long gone in the grave, that the hope of glory, Jesus Christ, is going to call us forward from those graves where we will meet him and be with him 
and live forever. If that's you today, if that's you today, then this is the greatest day of your life. Not because of me, but because of what Jesus has done. And if, Lord, someone out there needs to to bring the outsiders in, God, I pray that you would would bring the people in their spheres of influence to mind, God. That they would just see the person that you would like them to try to talk to, and it doesn't have to be aggressive, and it doesn't have to be all this, you don't start with the genealogies, but you start by praying for those people and wanting and desiring to see those outsiders come in and to know that the way is clear for them and that Jesus loves them and wants to meet them and bring them into the family. That you would give us the strength, Lord, and the grace to be able to do that. That you would give us the words to say to these people in the right moments, God, because we confess we don't know them. Speak through us to them and call them unto you, Lord. Call them for your own, God. Thank you for the outsider, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you're doing work to bring them in, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, God, we praise you as a family united in you, Lord, regardless where we come from. In Jesus' name, amen.